Dotnet Rocks episode 722 with guests Dan North, Gene Tabaka, and Gary Short. Recorded live Thursday, November 10th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Hope you're enjoying this series from Ordev. We certainly had fun making it. Before we get to the good stuff, i got to give some props to our new sponsor, Pluralsight, who provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and other industry experts, and they release 8 to 10 new courses every month. And they offer a free 10-day, 200-minute trial. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, and a full library of design patterns. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. All right, now let's get right to the interviews. Hey, it's time for .NET Rocks again at Ordev. Uh, Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin, we're at the end of the hall here in the Expo Hall at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden. Hey, man. Hi, sir. How are you? I'm great. This is so much fun. Yeah, well, we got Dan North in the house. It's only going to get silly from there. This I think. Is, yeah. We just told musician jokes for 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just finished your keynote, too. I so. just finished the keynote, yes. How did that go? Um, I think it went okay. So I haven't I haven't seen the the, the the Twitter stream yet, which is the the, the canonical truth. Yes, that <laughs> is what, the whatever measure. I think happened. That's what really happened. So what did you talk about? Um, so I was talking about uncertainty. Um, I've been for about the last year or so. I've been working for a trading firm. Well, last two years now, I've been working for a trading firm, um, writing kind of trading apps and and that kind of stuff, and being really utterly astonished at how productive these guys are delivering software. Really? Yeah, like uh, really amazingly. So they will turn around an entire application stack in weeks that I've seen people take months or years to do. And this whole thing about, you know, we try and do weekly releases and weekly deployments. They'll be doing, we'll be doing drops into production 20 or 30 times a day. Wow. Yeah. Which is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so it's like continuous integration, perpetually deploying? Continuous, like, yeah, just continuous everything. Yeah, yeah right. And, and, you know, and the teams are embedded. Literally, you've got programmers sitting next to traders and they're all just doing stuff. Wow. And when you say trading, do you mean stock trading? Yeah, yeah. So this is like trading on uh, financial exchanges. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then the kind of the, the methodologist in me, if you like, I've probably been doing this for a bunch of time and being utterly terrified because it was real culture shock coming from like my previous job was basically going into large organizations. And helping them get from zero delivery to any delivery right. was yeah. usually the model. Yeah. If you can so, actually get a piece of software out that can be used at all, you've at succeeded. All, you win, right? So, um, so you, like the Scrum folks call what they do hyperproductive teams. Right. Now, if your metric is, well, we've gone from zero to anything, that's an infinity improvement. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. but, it's amazing but, how much bigger <laughs> anything is than zero. Than zero, yeah. <laughs> so, but then, and then you almost become like institutionalized around that and you go, well, that, that's good, you know, yeah. and then you forget that actually you can do crazy stuff. You do so, better. Yeah. Like astonishingly better. So 
after about a year of, of culture shock terror of, of, of figuring out how this stuff works, I, I then decided I was going to see if there was anything in there I could mine. Is it just, you know, I've got you two guys and you're incredible together and it's magic. Right. And it's a one-off and it's a fluke and I'm really lucky that I'm in the same room as you. Or is there stuff you do that other people could do? Right. Probably is not it? as well as you because you're you two, but they, they, they could try and do and that would maybe help them. Really a teachable you know, can is I it take teach normal yeah. developers and get them here? Well, it's the classic pattern thing. Is mm-hmm. there is there a system of forces here that I can resolve into another system of forces in some repeatable way? Right. You know, yeah. which the, the whole thing is, it's given this context, is there some stuff I can do? Right. So, um, and I'm calling these things patterns of effective delivery. And I've been kind of mining them for about a year now. I started talking about them earlier this year. And what I found is the more and more I got into this, um, A, I think there are. I'm doing a talk tomorrow, end of tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. about that. But also this idea of uncertainty and embracing uncertainty kept on just appearing and reappearing and reappearing. So it's one of the kind of these patterns of, of effective delivery is, is if you embrace uncertainty rather than try and contain it or control it or make uh, it go away, you start acting differently and things start happening. Is it as simple as being able to say, I don't know? That's a lot of it. It's having yeah. the humility to say, yeah. I don't know. Because right. we've got big egos, right? We're, yeah. we're trained, we're designed as human beings. The way we fail to die is by having big egos. Yeah, yeah. It's by looking out for ourselves and you know, protecting ourselves and that kind of stuff. And being able to say, I, do you know what? I haven't got the faintest idea. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move forward on the basis that I haven't got the faintest idea and you probably don't either. Right. right. Maybe but we'll figure it out. we'll know it when we see it. You know, and I always cite the iPhone as the example of this. There is no market research study you could possibly have done that would have ended up with the answer, well, it should only have one button. (laughs) And it it should just be a big battery with a screen on top. (laughs) That that came out of nowhere. Someone realized that actually we'd got phones wrong. Right, right. And when, you know, you look at the spec sheet for the original iPhone and it's it had a crapper camera than anything that was out there. Uh, a crapper CPU than anything that was out there. Uh, no buttons, right? It had all yeah. this. Everything was wrong with Even it. Even the phone chipset was lousy. The phone chipset yeah. was lousy. The signal was lousy. Its yeah. ability to support a call was yeah. lousy. It kept dropping. R- right? Would you want to be the, the the product owner of the iPhone or the 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 Nokia N85 or whatever it was that right. came out? But, yeah. It's uh, and so so the you know that to me is the epitome of your note when you see it like mm. everyone who saw an iphone and i'm not yeah. a, a mac fanboy at all i'm right. a linux ubuntu on a on a thinkpad guy yeah. mm-hmm. okay so um but i've got an iphone i've got an iphone because it's brilliant right and when i saw it i was like yes you've just solved phone yes. okay? yeah that's <laughs> well done you've too. just solved phone yeah. phone was a hard problem you solved it yeah i would never have imagined that it looked like that no yeah. so this this whole thing about and it's the same with software and particularly when you're doing exploratory stuff so when you're writing a trading application, you don't know what good's going to look like. Mm-hmm. You know that roughly you want to sort of try and trade this thing, or you want to take an insane fire hose amount of market data and try and pull out the interesting bits. But we don't even know what interesting looks like. We don't even know how to describe interesting yet. <laughs> we just want to be able to pull out stuff. And so you iterate, and, and the only way to move forward with that is to iterate incredibly quickly right. and have everyone engaged. So it's about being wrong a lot. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be very, very good at being very, very wrong. It right. seems a to lot. In the least amount of time, yeah, yeah, as yeah. frequently as possible. Yeah. yeah, and create those feedback loops. It seems right. to me that uh, it goes against everything we are as human beings to be able to say that. Because if you look back <laughs> in the history of humans, mythology, stories, some came religion, some stayed stories, some derived into art. I mean, this is basically the behavior of when we don't know, mm. we make shit up. Oh, yes. <laughs> and oh, and yes. we make it up using the, uh, the, the environment around us 
So the stories reflect our environment and they reflect the things that we can identify with. So we can have some understanding of what it is that we don't know. Uh, Yeah, the way I described it in my talk is we would rather be wrong than uncertain. Right. Yeah. Okay, we crave certainty, and we'll just drop wrong in there. That'll do. Oh, sure. Anything yeah. will do. Just, right. just not avoid. Not not a gap that's uncertainty, because yeah. I can't cope with that. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a phrase that I heard, um, and it one of these sort of excellence-type phrases, where you want to always be the, the worst person in the band. Yep. You know that? You have this phrase? Oh, you yeah. Want to yeah. The lou- you want to own the lousiest house in the best neighborhood. Yeah, lousy yeah, house. I, so you want to be the, the worst. I am always the worst player. Well, the worst yeah. player in the band. It turns out you don't. Okay, I spent most of last year being the worst player in the band, and it sucks. <laughs> it's it horrific. Does. It turns out I've got this massive ego, and being the worst player in the band when you've been playing for 20 years is just soul destroying. But <laughs> it really is but crushing. You get better. Until, oh, do you ever get better? You get oh, yeah. Better. yeah. You get better. And, and, and actually, it was a real, it was genuine culture shock. It was a real yeah. baptism by fire. Mm-hmm. And I've, and I've come out of it, or come through the other side of it, uh, Looking at it and thinking how spectacularly confident I was yeah. uh, about stuff that uh, and 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 simultaneously wrong. You want to It was wonderfully kind of this wonderful isn't that the fundamental human system condition. Yeah, yeah, I think we have so this totally. incredible belief in our abilities that it's not yeah. founded in the basis of fact at all. Well, this is um, even you, Richard. No, wow, no, not Richard. No, 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 everyone else. <laughs> to be silly, Richard's except. To be you silly. Know, I went to Berkeley School of Music right out of high school. Talk about right. culture shock. I mean, that's a particularly great example because in your town, if you play guitar in high school, chances are you're among some of the best players in your age group for your town. Then you go to Berkeley School of Music in Boston, jazz school with all of the best, and you suddenly realize that you suck really bad. (laughs) Yeah, you just suck a bit less than the guys in your town. You suck a lot. Yeah. It's it's all um, relative. No, I, yeah. I, I feel your pain. There was, um, many years ago, I did uh, martial arts jiu-jitsu yeah. um, for a few years. And my instructor, when he got his dan, his black belt, um, one of the first things that happened was he, he got to go on a dan course. As they do weekend courses just for black belt and above. You know, your yeah, first right. dan and above. And he just got his black belt. And he was like, wow. you know. And, and in jiu-jitsu, getting a black belt is a big deal. Like in your grading, um, you'll have live knives, live katana. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, broken bottles, bike chains. This is for reals. People are trying to actually kill you because yeah. if someone isn't actually swinging a, mi- a bike chain at your head, the techniques don't work. You know, if you're just doing this really pathetic thing like that, you just stand there and you know, there's, there's nothing to do. So someone's actually trying to slice you up with a Japanese sword, <laughs> and then you do these wonderful throws and stuff, and you end up with a sword, and it's really cool, mostly. So, <laughs> um, or you end up with with, with cuts and and A and E, ER stuff. Um, so. But so he's, he's got his dan, he's got his black belt, and, and he goes off for this weekend course with the, the guy who was leading jiu-jitsu in the UK at the time. And they spent the entire day doing one throw. And the one throw is called Oso Tagari. It's the first throw you ever learn in jiu-jitsu. And it's the one where someone punches and you step and you block and you move your foot and they fall over. It's that one. Okay? And he spent the whole day doing this. And Paul, my buddy, came back and he said, I've never felt so useless. Wow. So I've been doing this, that throw I've been doing for It was the first throw years. he learned way at the beginning. And he's been doing this. it for five years. He's been yeah. practicing it for five years. Mm. So what, what happens on this, what happens over the course of this weekend is you start off doing this throw mm. and then you deconstruct the throw. You break it down into all of the micro parts of it. Yeah. And you end up at some point in the afternoon, the throw is now someone punches you as hard as they can. You're using your fingertips and a tiny little movement and they go bang. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> what he's done, because he's got a room full of incredibly focused people, 
is he's taken, he's shown them exactly what the essence is of that throw. Right. Mm. And what you're actually doing is normally you're just moving sacks of sand around when you do this throw. It's horrifically uh, inefficient. Mm. Mm. And he shows you every single pinch point that makes it perfect. And during the course of that day, you will do the best Osotogari you will ever do. You right, will yeah. never achieve that again. Right? <laughs> 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 but you'll know what it felt like when you're doing it the rest of the time. So right. you'll, huh. you'll, you'll, you'll riff on it and you'll go, ah, oh, that wasn't perfect because I felt perfect. Right. And I know that that wasn't, but I, you know, it's something to strive for. Yeah. And he said he came away just staggered. Like he'd got his black belt and he's, no. You're now, now you're good enough to start learning jitsu. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Now you're, back, now you're at the beginning. <laughs> now you're at the beginning. Congratulations. And it's yeah. exactly the same thing. You turn up at Barclay School of Music. Congratulations. You're ready to start learning guitar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. You suck. Now that you realize that, you yeah. learn something. That now we're ready to. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, this is an old riff that we've been talking about on .NET Rocks since, geez, since show one, which is it, it, you really have to kill your ego as a developer. You really can't. It sucks because it's really big. And it, it does it's suck. what keeps me safe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, know what you're good at. That's that's one thing, but uh, to, mm. yeah, it gets in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is the only option to get a new job with a team that's really, really talented? Like, how do you get better? Um, well, an excellent question. I I think I've just been very lucky. Um, so I was working at ThoughtWorks for eight years um, with some of the most smart people I've met. Mm. Um, before ThoughtWorks, I was working with a chap called Joe Walls, um, who's, I think, probably one of the best programmers in the world. Uh, and we go back a long way. We were kind of at each other's weddings and stuff. Um, and he was putting together this team in London. Mm -hmm. And so I went to join him. Um, and, and this is like him and one other guy and me um, cutting code. And it was just absolute trip. So I think I think the obvious, if you can do this, is get in the way of good people. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the whole, you know. Yeah. Um, try not to be the weakest person on the team. Try not to be the worst player because it's going to yeah. really suck. But try and be in a team <laughs> of people who are better than, you know, as, like, who you're going to learn from. Yeah. Um, or be prepared for it to suck. Um, but I think certainly there are strategies you can, you can deliberately learn. Mm -hmm. And there's a phrase I've heard called deliberate practice. Yes. Uh, I disagree that deliberate practice has anything to do with learning okay oh he said controversially yes you said controversially so how so? so how so because i think that deliberate practice and deliberate learning are very different mechanisms so deliberate practice is the kata is the uh doing the same thing again and again is the scales the refinement the, the refinement and the, the motor memory. memory the muscle right. memory yeah. right. okay that is deliberate practice that is so that then at any point you can just pick up the guitar and you can make it make the noise you want yeah Deliberate learning is a different thing. Deliberate practice is doing the same thing over and over and over again, you have already optimizing learned. for repeatability. Right. Okay. Deliberate learning is optimizing for discovery. What you want is every time you do something, it, for it to be different than the previous time. Mm -hmm. So when I try a new programming thing, I want to try, uh, try it in a different way, right. in a way that I haven't solved it before. Yeah. I'm going to try it using just functions, just objects, uh, just getters and, yeah. and, and, and accessors, uh, yeah. just tell, don't ask. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and solve it in ways that cause me to think weird thoughts. Right. It still yeah. seems like practice. I'm, doing, I'm trying to solve the same problem, mm. but I'm deliberately solving it different ways. It's still the element of practice. I'm, I'm solving the same problem, you're, 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 I'm exercising you're, you're, different pieces uh, of my mind. Okay, you're, you're, it, it's same in that you're investing time in getting good at something. Right. So, but that's where the similarity ends. 
the way in which you're getting good at something is you're creating learning opportunities. You're creating environments in which you haven't seen that thing before. I'd also you're, you're argue playing that a scale with all four fingers rather than just three. Right. So here's here's a, here's a little anecdote. Uh, Ingwie Malmsteen, you know the guitarist Ingwie Malmsteen. Yeah. So it turns out when he was a kid at school, he heard Slash playing guitar. He had a CD of Guns N' Roses, and he heard Slash playing guitar, and he was like, "That's incredible! I'm going to learn how to do that." I'm going to learn by that itself riff. is pretty amazing. Which is pretty outrageous. <laughs> yes. I want to learn Slash how to do that. Really so he plays it again player. and again and again. He's, and he learns how to play it. He learns how to play it. One day, he gets to see Guns N' Roses. He's never seen Guns N' Roses before. He's just had the CD. And, it tur- and then he sees Slash with two hands on the fretboard doing this. And he was like, oh, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. He'd learned <laughs> how to do that with one hand. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why he's got the fastest finger-picking speed in the world. Yeah. Because he can do what Slash does with two hands with one hand, because he just thought that's what he had to do. Are you thinking about Eddie Van Halen, perhaps? Uh, sorry, Eddie Van Halen. I was going to say, because right. yes, Slash isn't English. that good of a guitar. No, no, you're thinking, <laughs> yes, yes, it was Eddie Van Halen. Sorry, I, 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 yeah. I tell you that, but yeah, no, no, because otherwise it would have just been power chords. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, so, so he's, he's, right. he's trying to emulate Eddie Van Halen, but of yeah. course he's with two hands on the fretboard. He was like, Oh, oh, well, you could do that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so That's there's this crazy. one famous recording of Ingrid Malmsteen where it's just a run up to a, and it builds up and builds up and then it just explodes into yeah, this yeah. finger work. And it was, That's not human. That's not possible. <laughs> right. And, and it's because he didn't realize you weren't allowed to do that. Yeah. You know, you, you, the way you describe the, the, the learning process is, you know, solve this problem using only objects, solve this problem using only functions. Yeah. That's good exercise i'd mm-hmm. still say good practice but ultimately does it serve the customer well is that actually the best way to build the software for the customer long right. term uh, actually i would say no because what mm-hmm. i just described isn't i think the most effective way of learning okay so that's just a way of learning I, I was just distinguishing between deliberate learning versus deliberate practice i'm now starting to believe that both of those things are kind of noise they're kind of uh i'm going to risk saying indulgent well, there were okay. ways to for exactly the reason better. you said, right? It's like, well, is that the best thing for the customer? No. Right. Um, one of the most effective ways I've seen of learning, and this is one of the effectiveness patterns I'm talking about tomorrow, is what I call indirect learning. Indirect learning is this, is, um, or, or it's also, it's also, um, create necessity is another way of describing it, which is this, is if you paint your way into a corner, you've now got to get out of a corner. Right. Okay. That's, you, you create constraints in which you have to now solve stuff mm-hmm. uh, but you make it real so the example one example i use is joe again um was interested in node the javascript server-side node yep. framework so he's interested in learning about node and so now most people that i know when they're interested in the technology do exactly you know i'm going to go and find some kata i'm going to go and pro- try and solve this thing joe had an, an internal project that he had to deliver or they had chosen to deliver so he made it really public that he was going to deliver this thing. So now he's on the line for it. Right. And he decided he was going to do it in Node. He painted himself into the corner. Painted himself into a corner. At which point, this happens. Hmm. You have to know just enough about Node to solve this problem. Right. Yeah. It focuses the mind on what are the most useful bits of this. I mean, right. his JavaScript was already pretty hot. Yeah. But Node was a new thing. So... What is the, it, what you end up with is learning the bits of node you need to solve a real problem right, right. rather than the bits that seem interesting when you're playing with it. Yes. Right. And so now it turns out he's actually quite productive with node because he figured out the bits of it that are useful. Sounds like the way I program. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I give myself a, a, a task uh, that I have to do this and paint myself into a corner, but, but just put the constraint on myself. Yes. And then you, you're forced to figure it out. That's exactly yeah. what I do. 
And the constraints thing is interesting because um, the where I came across that as a principle is Eli Goldratt in the goal. Yeah. And in fact, at the end of the goal, there's an interview with him, and the interview mm. itself is amazing. And one of the things he talks about in there is they say, um, so this theory of constraints thing, this whole like you know looking at throughput and flow and all this, it makes such obvious sense. Mm. It's so obviously a, a sensible way to do things, and the results you've had are incredible. Why isn't everyone doing it? And he said, well, he said, what I've noticed is that it takes between 5 and 15 years for any reasonable size organization to adopt this stuff. Uh, yeah, right. So the, the interviewer huh? saying, huh? <laughs> yeah. And he said, all I can say is this, is it, it is a genuine paradigm shift. Right. And people will do anything before they'll have their paradigm shifted. Ah. So what you have is you have to create these three things. The first thing is you have to have no other options. You have to have exhausted every other possibility. Right. Okay. Because now you're prepared to have your paradigm shifted. Right. That's so you have the necessity. The second thing is you need the information. You need to know that this thing exists. Yeah. Okay. And the third thing is you need the opportunity. You need to be allowed to do it. Yeah. Right. So I can only give you one of those three things. I can only give you the information. You need to create the necessity. You need to create the opportunity. And... There's an awful lot, you know, and he said that empirically, he's been doing this since the 80s or whatever, empirically, uh, it's about a 5 to 15 year journey to create, to paint yourself into enough corners that you, that you shift that paradigm. Uh. And, and so what Joe does and what, what you're doing and what, you know, the really effective learners I see do is they create that. They say, right, I'm going to uh, give myself the constraint. I'm going I'm to force myself to break yeah. this paradigm by right. not allowing myself to use the stuff I know. Right. I'm going to give myself access to the information because we've got the internets these days and it's right. all out there. Um, and I'm going to go solve it. It's like the guys in the Apollo mission when they were given that table with all the parts all the that parts. were on that. Yeah, and they Apollo said, 13. Solve the problem with yeah. just these things. Keep these guys yeah. alive for the next three days given this stuff. Yeah. You have nothing else. <laughs> you have nothing else. Yeah. Right. And they solved it. They did. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, so, so, it's, yeah, so the reason I call it indirect learning is your. You're, learn, you're, you're solving Y to learn X. Do you right. know what I mean? You're, so, so what I'm doing is I'm standing up this internal application. I'm using that. That's the thing I'm doing. Oh, I happen to be learning Node on the way through. Yeah. Right. Of course, that was my original intent, but right. I got this outcome as well. Dan, what, uh, what, tell me about the, the, the talk you're doing next. So the uh, talk I'm doing next is, is about these uh, what, what I'm calling patterns of effective delivery. So yeah. behaviors, strategies for uh, that I've been kind of observing in orders of magnitude more effective teams than I've ever seen. And are any of these um, uh, origins of blog posts that you've done, or is there a place um, on the web where we can read about them? So I've, I've, um, no. <laughs> so I, I'm writing these things up at the moment. Um, okay. I, I will be publishing them. I am notoriously rubbish at this kind. Of, so the last thing I blogged was January, and I looked at right. uh, suddenly like November. Where did that year go? So the so, last thing I blogged was 2009. So don't congratulations. Worry about it. <laughs> it, it, it does feel like a book, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think this is the book I want to write. Right. I think this is the book I want to write. I think so. So this stuff ties in with the deliberate discovery stuff. It feels like the where behavior-driven development went next. Right. Do you know what I mean? It feels like that was the proving ground for this, and this is the thing I want to write about. So watch this space, but don't watch it too intensely because it might not. Nothing might happen in it for a while. <laughs> well, Dan, thanks for sitting with us for. Half oh, it was an absolute so. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk to you. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? 
I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Hey, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell from .NET Rocks, and we are recording live at the end of a hallway here at Ordev. Uh, you look up at the big Ordev sign, that's where we are. We're on the stage. We're here with Gene Tabeka. Tabeka. Hi, Gene. Hi, Carl. So what have you been talking about here at Ordev? I have two talks. I just uh, did one on collaborative visioning and learning models in agile adoption. Wow. wow. And that that's all fit on one title page. <laughs> that's, really. that's a lot of titles. It, it was a big font, too. <laughs> Visual and adaptive. Visual and learning models in agile adoption. Okay. Tell us what that means, really. Uh, for me, it means that I don't think Agile informs us enough about how to grow organizationally with how we do learning mm -hmm. and how we then create vision. So I used my company, Rally Software, in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Love it. Uh, and gave that as an example of some of the models that we use at the company for doing organizational learning and visioning and the whole bottom-up and top-down approach to how we do it. So I talked about a lot of different models. Um, I think I messed with people's minds because I decided to do 13 seconds per slide. That's fast. Well, yeah, I'm still stuck on the big picture here. Tell us what you mean by visioning. Well, for instance, uh, we have a visioning approach called True North. It's from a book by uh, Pascal Dennis, mm -hmm. Getting the Right Things Done. And you can set a True North as your vision for the year and then create mother strategies for the organization. So throughout the organization, everyone knows what we're working toward for the year. So planning. I was thinking, I was stuck. See, I've been doing Connect programming. So I'm stuck on vision, you know, like I know uh, there are a number of talks on visualizations yeah. and mine is about, yeah, Planning, ultimately really. how we use models for learning so that we can create a vision and then the variety of models that pull that together. So you I can, see. you can say that ultimately it creates plans, mm. but it, does it start with a vision or does it end with a vision? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that yeah. was actually kind of asked in the session. Mm -hmm. and someone said, well, are you telling me the vision comes bottom up? Or, I mean, isn't there a top-down vision somewhere? And uh, I, I kind of fire-hosed them with a lot of models. So I then told them that actually there are models I didn't talk about and that we used a Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm notion of where vision is and how we create vision in the marketplace for the company. 
But w what the right vision is of how to get there and how we all engage starts at the individual level, then the team level, then the departmental level, and then at a director level, and then at an executive level. You still, that's still very much bottom up. You know, you would yeah. think you think you get your executives together first, and then come top down on making those kinds of things work. Not too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we uh, we have some direction, but it's surprising to people who visit our company or that I talk with about this around the world how much we really engage at a team level and team vision to then inform what our vision will be for a quarter or for the year. So it, is your goal for creating a vision or refining a vision to find or to get at some general statement, a vision statement that is fundamental, that drives everything? Or does the vision have multiple levels of detail depending on who's implementing it? Yes. <laughs> so again, um, in the talk, I, I talk about that there are cadences of when we check in with how we're doing with our vision mm -hmm. and what we've been learning that might inform the vision. So there's a cadence. There's a level in the organization of what they're doing at which cadences. And then there are the models that you use at any given point within the cadence and the department. So, so both. So the, there is a vision statement that informs the model, which is where the details get fleshed out. Yeah, and so the vision statement comes from information from the marketing group, from our yeah. board of directors, from stakeholders. Yeah. They inform us about where they'd like to see us go as a company. But it also gets informed by the people really doing the work and engaging. And there, so there's this constant... Uh, checks and balances from the higher level vision to what we're doing and we give information back on how we're doing with the vision it it is a democratic way of declaring a vision every yeah. quarter it's anonymous voting on what the Got major it. initiatives will be is, interesting is yeah. there is there a situation that arises when a vision can hold you back where a vision could hold us hold back. you back or put you in a box no i'm sorry that doesn't fit our vision there are people who struggle with why the vision has arisen the way it has uh -huh. because they're in their world and they see things this way. Right. And that's why we have all these models that um, sort of require us to engage with one another about, do you see why the vision is emerging the way it is? And it doesn't look like your department or your team or your personal vision, but um, we can see how it's emerged through a lot of dialogue across the departments mm -hmm. and then among the directors and then inviting the executives down into the conversation. And one, one person was asking, how do you really do that? I mean, seriously. In one of the, the core uh, practices we have at Rally is very facilitated meetings. Because we have to make sure all the voices get in the room sure. if we really are going to have a shared vision. Well, and, it, and the problem is eventually so many people, you, you can't really get around that the whole table. Yeah. Uh, so there has to be a sense of, we're 300 people now. Um, how do all 300 voices uh, go up into the quarterly vision? Mm -hmm. the three, three things that we're going to, as a cross-functional group, declare as our vision. And... 
what's going to be our true north for the year? How do all 300 voices inform what the true north is going to be for the year? And how will we get to the true north? So are you actually, are specific teams sort of electing a, a representative that, that goes up to these quarterly meetings, just try to keep the number of bodies in the room down? What we do is uh, every team and department at every quarter runs a retrospective on a model that we use called an ORID. And then the director of that group, or the executive, or both, they, they represent that into the next level meeting. Right. And then the next level meeting makes recommendations based on what they've heard from all the departments on now, what would we recommend going forward with the next quarter, or how does this inform what our plan was for the year? Then that goes to the next level meeting, which is now 20 people, because uh, we've grown enough, we had to separate those out. So the 20 people take all the recommendations, and then they have a, a dialogue for half a day, and representatives from all parts of the organization, 20, 20 um, VPs, executives. And at the end of that half day, they have to have come to anonymous agreement. So it's all anonymous vote. Interesting. Because um, we don't want anyone to impact anyone else. Right. We don't want to be loudest voice driven or have the CEO have an impact or the founder have an impact. Everyone has an equal voice. When we walk out of the end of the day, what will our primary initiatives and our vision be for the next quarter, and how does that impact the year? And so, so is there a gag order on the employees when they go to the bar after work that they can't talk about what they voted on? I mean, I guess I'm trying to say, you know, in an organization, people have their agendas, and they, they like to preach them, and, you know, you know, you know who's behind which direction, and did, does it get, you know, is this a good place where people have to hash things out and... Oh, it gets, I mean, I was talking about this in the talk. It can get fiery. That's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I have my passion about what I think we ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. And you have yours and you have yours. Yeah. So someone's facilitating making sure that each of the three of us are heard mm. so that everybody else can say, now I understand Carl, Richard, Gene, right. and why they're coming in with that perspective. Yeah. And we have this thing about we're only as informed as the least vocal voice in the room. Sure. Yeah. And so we need every insight. So we use highly facilitative approaches to running these meetings. Yeah, that's great. We're having the in fact we're having the meetings Tuesday of next week. I get back to Boulder on Monday. And the next day you're next in. day. Yeah. Um this these these big ones um the facilitation is really important, and I've been a primary facilitator at Rally. Mm -hmm. um, but what I've decided to do this time is to actually step back and be an ethnographer. Because so many people ask, really, how you do this? You actually do this? So a lot of my talk had a lot of pictures in it, but I don't have pictures of the way we currently do these higher-level meetings. And... It's a, it's a, I think, phenomenal story. So I asked permission uh, from my boss, the CTO. I said, I'd really rather not participate this time. I'd rather capture the story mm. and make mm. it available to Interesting people. Interesting idea. Now, and part of this, obviously, is deciding what features are going to get built next. That it, it, Feature sets 
come out of higher level visions of where the company's headed right. yeah. cross functionally. And those impact feature sets because feature sets are also driven by customer voting. Mm-hmm. So those, they vote. Um, and I would they think the customer has a lot of weight there. Like you've, you've done a, a good job of, of leveling the playing field internally so that there's sort of equal credibility coming from each person. The mm-hmm. anonymity really helps for that. Yeah. But I mean, does the customer have a certain weight when it comes to deciding on features? They do. I'm talking at an organizational level. Right. So at a product level, there's a democracy that includes the customers. Right. And so there's a, they can vote in anonymously or non-anonymously about what they would like out of the feature set. Sure. And then that goes to the product council who are representing the customer. So these, these things sort of are mirrors of one another. And it, it, if I had my preference, you could see the fractals of it all. Mm-hmm. They all flow the same way. There's a sense of cadence, uh, organizational involvement, and which set of models. Mm-hmm. And then we just apply that everywhere in different levels of cadence, different levels of the organization, different models. No, I think it's brilliant that internally you have the same process as you have for the external processes to, yeah. to manage how the customer get benefits from the product. Oh, well. it, we, won't, we won't engage in a practice with customers unless we do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we're doing a lot of work right now on uh, agile portfolio management. And how did we come up with portfolio steering and portfolio management in an agile organization? We... We did it ourselves. We've been doing it for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And our larger customers are saying, well, we know how to do Scrum and we know some XP practices, but really we don't have a clue at this portfolio level because that still feels so waterfall and command and control. Right. It can't possibly look, work in an agile environment. Mm-hmm. And so we're proving that it can. You're testing it out. That's yeah. Great. And then and then we run, uh, we, we do this kind of work, this kind of modeling with customers who want to say, you know, I see that you're doing that at your company. I'm willing to be a guinea pig because I desperately need to learn t- to do this at my company. So mm-hmm. we've been, I mean, we have the great fortune of having a couple of people that have invited us in and say, okay, take over and show us how you use these models because we really do want to be collaborative, but we, we don't have resources or yeah. sources to go look to for how to do it. Sure. We just know to have, how to have teams have stand-up meetings and mm-hmm. how to do release planning meetings. Gene, what's your website? Uh, rallydev.com. And Rally. I have a blog, rallydev.com, uh, Agile blog. Awesome. Gene, thank you very much. This is great. I loved it. Thank you, Bo. Thank you so much. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Grape City. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Boss comes and says, sales are up this week. I'm taking everybody out to lunch. Awesome. Next day, we're taking a loss. What happened? Well, you're a developer. You can create a report. So you go to your boss and say, okay, what should I report on? And they have no idea. Well, here's the good news. Active analysis from Grape City Power Tools empowers your boss, the money guys, so they can find the answers to their own questions. And the best part is, it's a control. Completely self-contained BI. Using a drag-and-drop interface, users can easily discover trends in the data. 
and more importantly, the deviations from those trends through its powerful graphical analysis capabilities. Development against the control is easy. All you have to do is provide the data. Active analysis will take care of the aggregation, grouping, filtering, and sorting for the user. Of course, it offers programmatic control of all these operations, too. So if you want more company lunches, do your boss a favor. Use active analysis. For a free evaluation, please go to gcpowertools.com slash analysis. And don't forget to thank Grape City for being a great sponsor of .NET Rocks. Hey, we're back. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, .NET Rocks Live at Ordev. We're talking to Gary Short. Hi, Gary. Hi there. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. All right. It's beauty. We had a long late night last night, didn't we? Long. No, no, you guys had a long uh, night. I was a good boy. I mean, the, the main body of the conference ended, what, about 5, 36 o'clock? Sort of took off for dinner, or even ate here, and then yep. there was open spaces till 10? Open spaces until 10, yeah, Mark Rendell and Seb. Lambda and all that lot were doing their thing, yeah. and then we retired to the conference bar. Yes, <laughs> the guys at the Green Lion, uh, you know, they should if they see the badge, just give us a drink. Yeah, they they pretty much sponsor this conference. I think so. Yeah, well, we certainly sponsored the bar for the three days. Yeah, a, they closed down after this conference finishes for a month just to, just to kind of relax and it's calm like, down. Yeah. Guys wow, thank goodness that's over. Yeah. <laughs> so, technical debt is your topic. Yeah, that's what I'm talking on this afternoon. This is a term I got to admit I haven't really heard before. So tell me what this is all about. It's a kind of the, um, I guess it's kind of the, the technology equivalent of financial debt. So everybody understands financial debt well enough. And in as much as um, you borrow money from the bank or something so that you can afford your mortgage to buy your house now. So it's the mm-hmm. idea that you, you borrow um, financial uh, money so that you can get the benefit of an asset now instead of having to save up and, and pay it. Okay. And technical debt is the same, actually. We understand as engineers that we take um, architectural shortcuts and maybe software um, shortcuts in order to get a benefit right now. So Get a feature hit, done quickly. Yeah, get a feature done quickly, hit a milestone, get VC investment. But whatever. we're going to have to pay it back later. But we know that we have to pay it back later. Yeah. And, of course, that's the good side. The good side is when we actually understand the technical debt that we've, uh, we've accrued and we know when we're going to pay it back and we know how we're going right. to pay it back. I mean, right. how much... We're gonna. It's gonna cost us to pay that back. Yeah, but we do the, tend not to do that. Yeah, that's the dangerous side. The dangerous yeah. side is when either you decide you're not going to pay back that technical debt because, well, what's the business advantage of paying it back, or you don't even understand that you've accrued technical debt and then it, it bites you in the ass when you're not looking. Well, that's typically the, the guy in the field, the guy actually writing the code, knows he incurred. Oh, the totally debt, does. But it rarely. It seems to me that often it does not get up to the management level that so sometimes, the business doesn't understand yeah. that we paid a penalty for getting that feature done earlier. Yeah. So sometimes you're right. Sometimes the management just don't understand mm-hmm. the uh, debt that they accrued. And sometimes mm-hmm. they do understand it, but they, they don't see the business advantage in paying it back. And since the guy on the ground is the guy who understands the technical debt they accrued, but he's not the guy who pulls the trigger on shipping the software, right. then that's where problems arise. So, so when I take it that you're not really advocating don't go into technical debt. I think what you're saying is understand what it's going to be and weigh the risks of whether you can afford to pay it yeah, back or that's, not, just like you would do in taking That's totally right. So the way I, if, if you want to look at it in a, another way that you understand, technical debt is like bugs, all right? Um, as software engineers, we all know there are bugs in our code. Nobody writes bug-free code. Yep. Yeah. But um, we also understand that if we have, if we drive down the level of bugs in our code to a level that if we ship it 
and the bugs are in such corner cases that most of our users never hit them. Right. Yeah. To all intents and purposes, there's zero bugs there. If, if you I ask, do. if you ask a user, "Hey, does this software have bugs in it?" He's going to go, "No, I've never seen one." That's right. And that's <laughs> what you're aiming for for technical debt. Yeah. We know that we've got technical debt in our in our um, code base, but if we can drive down the level of technical debt so that it doesn't have an impact on the project, right. that's good enough. We're going to we're happy. Sort of with like that. avoiding it. Yeah, exactly. So at the same sort time, of like drugging the banker. Right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that kind of. <laughs> This is not the debt you're looking for. Yeah, way, <laughs> that kind of Jedi mind trick. Yeah, a little yeah, yeah. wave of the Jedi hand there. That's it. So th- let's go the other way. You never pay back your technical debt. What is the equivalent to, what is technical bankruptcy? What technical, does that look like? Technical bankruptcy looks like um, projects getting canned. You yeah. know, where. Um, but that's a business decision. What kill? why would you can that project? Because, so you can that project because um, adding the, the next set of features yeah. right. takes either too long or it's too expensive. Right. And projects get canned. Yeah, exactly. Because projects get canned because they are over time or they're over budget. Right. Nobody's ever heard of a project that gets canned because it's on time within budget. Well, yeah. They you guys knocked that out early and on yeah, time. Hell, you're all, all sacked. Exactly. That <laughs> never happens. You know, unless it's before it's time. If you build, if you spend a lot of time building a project and then the market turns out not to be there, there's another reason why. There's, there's, that's another reason as well. And yeah. so projects get canned because Ask they are over time. <laughs> yeah, ask me another one. I'm good at this. <laughs> yeah. Projects get canned because they're over time or they're over money. Um, right. And pretty much 90% of the projects that are over budget or over time, if you actually dig into that, the major cause or one of the major causes is usually technical debt. They've let it, they either didn't know they had it or they, they let it accrue to such an extent that there just wasn't enough time to pay it back. So right. that's technical debt. And you're, and you're always, you know, every time you try and ship a new feature in a debt-ridden project, you're always going to pay a certain amount of that debt back. I think it's one of the reasons that the feature rate declines over time. Totally. Yes. Yeah. You, you're, you're doing this without acknowledging that you're doing it. Yep. And so the, the, the amount, if you're working in an agile environment, for example, and you're on maybe monthly iterations, mm-hmm. then the number of features that you can actually build in that month starts to decrease. And also you'll find that the number of tests that you have to do actually starts to rise as well because right. your developers are having to write code to go around technical debt. Well, that's code that needs to be tested. You know, if you're running Encover or one of the other tools of that nature and you say as a, as a project milestone, well, I want, I want 85, 90, 95% coverage. Well, that code needs to be covered. And so right. the number of tests rises. So all of a sudden, everybody's workload increases, even people that you wouldn't necessarily associate with technical debt, i.e. the testers and the QA guys, yeah. their workload's increased as well. Right. So how do we pay back technical debt in a way that's more efficient than what you've just described? I mean, we're always going to pay it back or abandon the project. Sure. So is there a more efficient way to pay it back? There, there totally is. What what I advocate is um, for, for each and every enterprise or each and every project within an enterprise, because they could all be different, then you need to decide on the level of technical debt that we spoke before that represents your zero level. Right. You know, the level at which it has no impact. If somebody, if it was a complete greenfield site and somebody said, how long would it take to add these features and you say, you know, eight days, your level of technical debt that you want to aim for, your zero level, is where you it still takes you eight days. Mm-hmm. And okay, there's technical debt in there, but it has no impact on the project, so I'm cool with that. I mean, I would argue so, there's a point in a project where, I'm sorry to interrupt That's too, right. But Building the first set of features in version one of a product takes a certain amount of time, and then that time actually shortens for building new features as the structure of the app grows. Absolutely, because the so architecture is already there. The architecture is already in place, yeah. but then it is technical debt that then slows it down again. So this is actually a exactly. curve. So exactly, so you get this kind and of curve like this, and then obviously it, then it just goes up. And right you know, at that of point. course, what happens yeah. too is that if the architecture is inflexible, so that at a certain point the technical debt needs to be paid or abandoned, project abandoned. If it's inflexible, 
your small debts are just adding to the big debt. It's interest. And your it's, small paybacks are adding to the big debt because you're correct. putting Band-Aids on something that eventually yeah. you're really going to have to cough up the whole That's sum. Right. So, that, so it seems like you can't just sort of, like a financial you know, planner would tell you, just put a little aside, pay a little bit more off every month. You really can't do that with tech debt. So you can, but just not in that way. Yeah. So what, what you do then is if you're working in an, in an agile way, um, there's, there's two ways really to do it. There's the, yeah. there's the painful credit card, cut it up and pay it off in a lump sum kind of thing. Right. Where we just right. say, right, we're taking a month. And we're, we're doing not, an iteration. We're doing an iteration. We're going we're gonna to burn an iteration, yeah. paying down that technical debt. Now, sometimes you can get away with that if you've got management on board. Right. Because you're not going to ship any new features. Exactly. Exactly. Fe- number of features going in that month is X. Number of features coming out that month is still X. Right. So the manager says, well, what's my business value? So that's one way of doing it, but, but it, it would, requires management buy-in. And wouldn't one of the returns on that actually be, hey, the number of tests is going to go down? Productivity goes up, tests go down. Right. I mean, that would be the... Speed shifts. We, it's not like nothing changes. It's something oh, does. No, the absolutely. Features don't change, but the infrastructure to maintain the application is going to change. Yeah, if you, but getting... Is forking the code what you're going to suggest? That, that kind of thing. But, but what Carl was saying, you know, the, the idea of paying a little bit off is the other way of doing that. Right, so you yeah. say, well, we're not, we can't do that. Right? That's a, we're in a competitive market. Right? Yeah. Our competitors are not going to stop for a month, so we can't do that either. Right. In which case, what you're going to do is you say, right, okay, here's a list of our technical debt. Right? Yeah. So this month, we're going to do these features and this part of the technical debt. And the next iteration, we're going to do these next features and this part of the technical debt. So there you are paying it off bit by bit. That's like paying your credit card off monthly. Well, unless, your, unless your architecture has to change so severely that everything else will be affected. Yeah. This, one, this is what I'm saying. In that situation, it would be almost better to start another project with the architecture correct and then <coughs> spend a certain amount of hours every Exactly, and then you're back that. into the realms of technical debt bankruptcy, where you just yeah. say this project, this project can't be saved. You know, yeah. we're going to declare it's it's going to be like the Iceland, really, yeah, or right. the, you know, well, you have this yeah. big lump that you have to pay yeah. all at once to redo that architecture. That's yeah, exactly. it may be too much. Yeah, and and that's when and that's when projects get canned and, and people lose their jobs. That's unfortunately, really so it's it's an important thing. I mean, it's technical debt. It's it's seen sometimes as the poor relation in software engineering. People go, yeah, yeah, technical debt. We know about it. Yeah, it's it's not that serious yeah. problem. This it it costs developers jobs sure. if you don't get a hold That's of it. Right. It's one of the most important things yeah. in software engineering. As as a developer, how am I supposed to measure this or you know really represent it effectively to the stakeholders? So there's two ways to do it. Um, there's a kind of snapshot. Um, there's a snapshot way which is not particularly accurate. So what you can do is you can ask your developers, as you would do normally in an iteration to estimate how long it's going to take to do this piece of work, right? All right? And then you can graph that over time. And obviously, over time, as the technical debt mounts, that goes up. At the same time, you can ask them, say, if our architecture was perfect, or this was a greenfield site completely, how long would it take you then? Yeah. All right? Graph the two things together, and the gap between the two graphs is the value of your technical debt. Right. And you can see it going up. So that's a way to do it in a snapshot kind of way. A more scientific way to do it, and this is one of the things I talk about in my talk, is you can actually derive a formula you know, to do with um, what's broken, who's got to fix it, how long will it take to fix, right. that kind of thing. Build them out and as features. Build them out as features and actually attach, um, you know, pay. I mean, you know how much you pay your developers. Right. So you attach a financial value to that. And that gives you um, a, a bit of armament to go to the management as right. well. Because when you have to say to the management on on one side, there isn't going to be any features. Yeah. But on the other side, it says, you know, a monthly iteration costs us $50,000. But we are actually going to take out $125,000 of technical debt 
for that 50000 Right. Then they can kind of see, okay, I, I see the Well, and I think the big thing is trickling mm-hmm. that debt charge, that cost, up to the QA as well. Sure. You know, like I said, you're creating more and more tests to deal with the band-aided infrastructure. Yep. As you rebuild that and make it efficient again, a bunch of tests go away, so that the time to do testing goes down, quality testing goes up. Like, I mean, that's really an interesting part of that math. Absolutely. I'm reminded of the whole problem with fixing infrastructure, government investment in building in fixing a road or whatever. Um, the cost to fix that road goes up the longer you wait. Sure. Because the, you know, more stuff has to be done to it. And the interesting thing about that is it maps quite well into software engineering because I don't know what it's like in the States, but in the UK, you know, government goes out to tender for let's build a new road and it's, it's always the best value case that wins, you know, which, right. which means the cheapest job. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's like that in software engineering as well. You know, a, a, a company goes out to contract to get some work done. It's, it's the contractors who will do it for the cheapest, provide your software for the cheapest, who get the deal. And just with the roads, you know, <laughs> you're, you're probably going to be patching that road for the next 20 That's years. Right. It's the same with the software. You're going to be patching that thing for the next 20 yeah. years and it's going to creak and groan and, and crack under the, the strain. Yeah. Well, Gary, thanks a lot. This is great stuff. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. All right. Come back and see us again. Anytime. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC